You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We're recording on Thursday, March the 30th. And on this week's episode, we're going to talk about why prices in Sweden's supermarkets are finally falling, why Hungary has approved Finland's NATO application, but not Sweden's. We will examine how comfortable Sweden is with nudity. And finally, we'll dig into a scathing new report on Sweden's climate policy. And we'll hear from one of the experts behind it. I'm Paul Omani and with me today in Stockholm is James Savage. And we're joined from Malmö by Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Before we get into the news, do you have anything you want to get off your chests or anything you're looking forward to? James, first. <laughs> okay, I mean, we just got to say it. I know it's ridiculously tedious to talk about the weather, but we're all thinking it because we're walking around Stockholm. It is April on Saturday by the time you listen to this. And by the time you listen to this, it was still there will still be snow all over the streets of Stockholm and not just any old snow, packed snow and ice. It's not melting, and I think we're all getting a little bit crazy. What? Anything you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to Easter, but I would love it to be springtime. Um, no, yeah, Easter's going to be nice. We get a four-day weekend. Lovely. Yeah, Thank exactly. You, Jesus. It's coming up like it's um, Good Friday on Friday, right? It next is Friday. Good Friday next Friday. So Good Friday, and then we get Easter Monday as well. So that is four whole days off in a row, which is very, very nice. Mm. And, Lots of herring um, and eggs. Lots of herring and eggs because it's a Swedish religious uh, holiday. So we will eat uh, herring and eggs as we do at all the other Swedish religious holidays and non-religious holidays, in fact. And apparently we're supposed to do it on the Saturday, Easter Saturday. Mm. You should eat herring and eggs and, oh God, probably meatballs as well and that kind of stuff. Very good. Uh, How about you, Becky? Well, my birthday is just after Easter, so I'm obviously looking forward to that. But I mean, one thing that I think, I don't know if you guys have been following this football row that happened on Monday. Like, not yes. that I am someone that particularly watches football, but I saw it on Swedish Twitter. Um, it was the trainer of the Swedish national team. They just won 5 0, and they had this horrific, or he had this horrific post match interview, which he ended up storming out after. Like, it just went so badly. So, essentially, this expert, Boyan Jordic, asked him some question about one of the players should have been playing for longer. And he just was like, why are you being so negative? We've won 5 nil, blah, blah, blah. So, but the bit that everyone is discussing is like in this heated argument, Jan Andersson, the, the, the trainer of the Swedish national team, asks Boyan, who is Swedish but born in Serbia, who do you represent? Which Boyan mm. took to mean, do you represent Serbia or Sweden? But Janne claims that he was talking to him like, do you represent the media? Do you represent a player? Do you represent mm. the the fans at home? So it was kind of, it all kind of blew up, this big thing. He ended up kind of storming out saying like, oh, this is terrible. But like, he just left. And then, you know, people on Twitter were like, oh, did he mean it like this? Did he mean it like this? And 
I think the interview itself is quite dramatic, really, and it's a real example of like how conflict-averse Swedes are. Obviously, this was a conflict, but there was these three other people in the interview that were just standing there, like watching the car crash play out in front of them. <laughs> Apart from one of them, uh, Niklas Jidas, who tried kind of unsuccessfully to get them to take a time out, but that mm. didn't really work. I mean, they've ironed it all out now, the two of them. They had like an hour long heart to heart yesterday where Boyan was like praised Yana for being genuinely interested in his background. It was a very giving discussion. It seems that they both agreed that it was kind of a horrific interview for both of them. But it seems like they're friends again. But definitely, I would recommend watching that. I felt, I mean, Boyan was being really hard on him about his strategy. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And it seemed, I just interpreted him as saying, well, when have you ever set the strategy for a national team that won a match 5-0, you know? Yeah. I felt that's what he was saying. But I, but I thought it was really interesting that when Boyan said, what do you mean? Do you mean Serbia? And then you could just say, Yana just goes, all farm. The cog's turning like, ah, okay, that sounds quite bad. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't yeah. have said that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think he was, it was a racial slur from no, what I but saw. But I can but... see how, it, how it could have, he could have interpreted it that way as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But yeah, that, that interview went around the world. It was reported on newspapers everywhere. It was, yeah, it was, it was just such I, a car I, crash. I read yeah. a really good article from the from the journalist uh, Irena Pojar, who has a Balkan background as well, like uh, Boyan Georgis, and she said that she could 100% understand why Boyan reacted that way, given how many times he has probably been criticised for his background and how many mm. times he's he's had racism directed at him. Uh, but she also said that Jan Andersen probably didn't mean it that way, but it was unsurprising that that Boyan had reacted in the way in the way he had, having arrived in Sweden in the early 1990s at a time when there was an awful lot of anti-Yugoslav sentiment. I arrived in Sweden in the the late 1990s and it was still around then. Just to sort of expand the context a bit, I mean, it is always this question, where are you from, is on the one hand completely innocent and can... And but sometimes can be taken in the wrong way. You've got to be really careful about when you use it, I guess. And I find it weird sometimes that people don't, you know, when I'm an obvious foreigner mm-hmm. and, and they don't ask me where I'm from because, you know, it's an obvious thing to ask. It's just like, yeah. you know, it, it's it's an obvious part about who I am. They might ask me where I work and, <laughs> and you know, what I do, but where I'm from is not, it never comes up. And it's like, but why, why not? Because it's such a sensitive issue. Mm. But it shouldn't be. In a, in a sane world, it shouldn't be a sensitive issue. How about you, Richard? Anything on your mind? Yeah, well, I've been quite struck or, or, or frustrated, I think, because I'm covering Denmark as well. And, and the Danish government has come out with this idea that Brits who missed their um, post-Brexit residency status, who, who didn't mm. manage to apply in time and are sort of facing having to leave Denmark, will have been given an extra year or even two years. Grace, you got to the end of this year to resubmit or apply for the first time. So it's it's frustrating because Sweden, according to Eurostat data, has like pretty much the worst record in forcing Brits who were living in Sweden before Brexit to leave. And when Becky spoke to Maria Malmstenegard, she said that we absolutely don't want anyone to be forced to leave when she was told that, you know, of the 2,200 UK citizens forced to leave the EU between 2020 and September 2022, fully half were from Sweden. I mean, it's a massive overrepresentation, And maybe there's something wrong with the data, but that they haven't got back to us. They haven't done anything about it. There's no discussion in, yeah. in, in, in the Swedish public media 
And I think um, Emma's written a opinion piece about it that we'll stick up today, I think. I think also just one thing is, I think the stories that have happened in Denmark are very similar to the ones that we've been reporting on in Sweden, but they were picked up by major Danish newspapers, which kind of got this whole momentum. And I think it's just kind of this feeling that we're reporting on these people whose lives have been kind of turned upside down by deportations. And it feels like it's not really broken through to Swedish mainstream media, like Swedish language media yet. And we'll link to Emma's article on that when it goes live. Okay, on to the news now. And uh, we mentioned last week that consumers might be hoping Sweden's main supermarkets would follow the lead of Lidl and reduce food prices. And lo and behold, Ica and Coop announced that they would be doing just that. Becky, why are Ica and Coop lowering their prices? Well, the official line is, oh, we want to be really helpful. We want to help all these consumers in difficult times, lowering our prices. But, I mean, if I'm being cynical, the real reason is... They were worried about losing market share to Lidl, who announced this last mm. week. So Lidl have about 5 to 6% of the Swedish food market at the moment. Ica has 30 to 40%. Coop has 20%. And then Axe Food, which owns Villiers and Hemshop, also has around 20%. So yeah. I think they were just genuinely scared that they were going to lose their position on the Swedish market. It's interesting that Axe Food said they weren't going to lower prices. Why Why not? Well, they own Villiers, which is uh, a low-priced supermarket, which kind of has the same prices as Lidl as well, mm. which they say they have the long-term goal of offering Swedes the lowest-priced bag of groceries in the country. And so their argument is kind of, we have this long-term goal of already offering low prices, we're continuing to offer low prices, and we're not just going to bring in temporary discounts or price freezes, we're going right. to keep offering these low things. So like Lidl, Eco and Coop have also that their price freezes will last around two to three months you know maybe they'll be extended we don't know but i think axe food have kind of gone for the line of why do we need to have price freezes when we already offer the lowest prices we can okay okay interesting and what's been the reaction from uh, consumers and analysts to this development i think for consumers i'm at least talking for myself for the people that i know yeah understandably quite happy because food prices have gone up a lot this year (laughs) me and my husband were like Screw Ica, we're just going to shop at Lidl, they're lowering prices. But uh, now we're like, oh no, maybe Ica are also lowering prices. You know, mm. you look for the you look for the lowest price. You're not as loyal as you maybe were a year ago. I think lots of consumers have been, have been kind of switching supermarkets. I mean, even mm. going into Lidl myself, you see a lot more people that you wouldn't have seen there before. There's, there's, yeah. there's kind of a wider breadth of people shopping there. Mm. So I think consumers are happy. I think this also could help bring down inflation because inflation have been has been kind of propelled by high food prices, which would also be welcome news for consumers and analysts as well because yeah. it would lower the risk of further interest rate hikes or it could mean that any hikes are are smaller. And we've also we've got this interest rate announcement coming in April, so I think there's a lot of people yeah. kind of keeping a close eye on that. Ulf Mazur from price comparisons like Multiprice Colin warned that uh, consumers should maybe be wary of prices going up on other products to finance the cuts on everyday items. It's also only a few hundred items out of like thousands so how much will these price cuts actually affect people and how much is it just marketing and then um, some analysts have also said that this could mean that companies slash prices on their own brand goods because they've got kind of more control over the producers there and can put more pressure on right. them to cut costs but I guess time will tell whether this is a marketing ploy or whether this is actually going to be noticeable in consumers wallets. Great thanks Becky and if anyone wants to find out more about the supermarket price wars we'll put a story link in the notes. To NATO-related news now, and the Russian ambassador to Sweden, Viktor Tatarintsev, warned on the embassy's website that Finland and Sweden would become legitimate targets of Russian retaliatory measures once they join NATO, and that has resulted in him being summoned to the foreign ministry, with Foreign Minister Tobias Bilström noting that Sweden's security policy is determined by Sweden, no one else. 
And while, of course, the decision to apply for NATO membership was very much Sweden's to take, actually getting in is a different matter. Sweden's neighbour Finland received a major boost on Monday when the Hungarian parliament ratified its NATO application. But that very much begs the question, why haven't they ratified Sweden's application yet, James? I think in, in a word, it's leverage. As long as Hungary doesn't ratify Sweden's application, it has leverage over Sweden. And mm. I think you've got to see this in the context of what's happening in the EU, which is the EU is putting a lot of pressure on Hungary over democracy and the rule of law. You know, yep. that Hungary has um, been criticised for, for its, how it's handling, um, you know, the appointment of the judiciary and many other things and press freedom and all of these kind of things. So there is a general EU pressure on Hungary. And Hungary now sees Sweden's NATO application as leverage. Obviously, though, Hungary wants to also balance its relations with the EU. It doesn't want to go too strongly in one direction or another. And so it's quite handy now to hide behind Turkey. And when Turkey has gone further towards approving Finland's membership, in fact, as, as we speak, it has approved Finland's membership, then for Hungary, Sweden becomes the, the, the country that it can still exercise a bit of, right. a bit of leverage over. So Viktor Orban's spokesman, who's called Balas Orban, said that, of course, the government supports Swedish membership. But then he pointed to members of the Hungarian parliament. So they're mm. trying to they're trying to push, push it away from them, from the government's responsibility, saying, look, it's members of parliament that who don't feel comfortable with comments from Swedish ministers about Hungarian democracy. And an aide to Viktor Orban has said that they want undertakings that Sweden will stop criticising Hungary. So we'll see where, where, where we go with that. OK, and how has um, Sweden's government reacted to Hungary's move? I mean, specifically sort of splitting them away from Finland the way they've done. What uh, Tobias Bilström, foreign minister, says is that Sweden's criticisms of Hungary are exactly the same as Finland's criticisms of Hungary. And of course, they are very similar to the criticisms of Hungary made by members across the EU. Yeah. So Tobias Bilström says, well, this is, this, this is ridiculous. There's, 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 no, there's no reason to split us off. And he also says that criticisms of Hungary's respect for the rule of law have nothing to do with the NATO application. Which is true. I mean, yeah. this is generally done in the context of the European Union, which is completely separate. But then this is politics. And of course, many of the things that Turkey is demanding of Sweden aren't strictly linked to Sweden's NATO application. But it's politics and it's leverage. But clearly Sweden is trying to, is try, is trying to separate these issues and, 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 mm. and get Hungary to separate these issues. And of course, is encouraging, um, and I'm sure successfully, other European countries and other NATO countries to put pressure on Hungary to treat these issues separately. So it's, this is not just Sweden versus Hungary. This is, you know, many other countries that are both members of the EU and the NATO that yeah. are pushing pressure on Hungary now. Yeah. Okay. So because of what Hungary and Turkey are doing, it's looking very likely that Finland will enter NATO before Sweden. Does this now mean that Finland's parliament will need to approve Sweden's application? Well, uh, yes, uh, Finland will have to approve Sweden's NATO application because Finland will be a NATO member. I yeah. imagine it will go a little, a little, a little more smoothly than Hungary and Turkey. I mean, in all seriousness, Finland has said that it very much wants Sweden. And they want, they, they really want it to go in together, and they're, and they're very good relationships. But they will have to do it. Yeah, they will. It will but have they to will, go they will have the to. They will have to be a ratification process. Yeah. Finland will have to ratify Sweden, assuming that they are actually formally a member by the time that Sweden's mm. um, membership. Just goes for the through. sake of fun, if, we were, if if Finland were to try to extract some leverage from Sweden, I mean, what what annoys Finns about Swedes that they would like to fix if they could? Oh, I don't know. I, th I think a lot of Finns would quite like to uh, have to stop translating everything into Swedish for the five percent of the population that is Swedish speaking yes. over there. Um, but also, maybe, perhaps they could challenge Sweden to, I don't know, a, um, 
a macho wife carrying competition or something like that. That's a Finnish thing, isn't it? They also like to uh, whip each other with birch twigs after going in a sauna. So I've got these images of like running the gauntlet. You carry your wife into the sauna and then you come out and you have like fins whipping you with birch twigs like okay Ulf now we'll let you come in that kind of thing <laughs> yeah 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 now it does come as a bit of a shock that like my first trip to, to Scandinavia was to your Finnish friend and it was just coming in the sauna and he sort of brings up this sort of weapon <laughs> and then starts like you know anyway <laughs> <laughs> starts beating seven <laughs> shades out of you oh god mm. I mean it, traditionally the fins tend to see the Swedes as a tiny bit of feet, I think. Yeah. So mm. anything to anything to sort of macho them up a bit. Yeah. They should maybe insist on Swedes calling it a, a sauna as well and not a yeah. bastu. Absolutely right. I remember when I was on uh, I was on scout camp in Finland in like 2010 or something. And I remember there was these like seven-year-olds with axes just like whittling wood. And then, you know, we were staying with all these, uh, these with this, this group of scouts from the north of Finland. And they were just like, oh, yeah, what music do you like to listen to? And all of them were like, I like to listen to heavy black metal. <laughs> just these, like, very cute, like, blonde, kind of tiny, kind of slightly nerdy girls. It's like, yes, I love death metal. <laughs> so maybe you'll have, like, a, a listening con- competition of, like, forcing the Swedes to finally appreciate Finnish death metal. <laughs> There's a lot of Swedish death metal as well. That'd be, yeah, that's true, that'd be a good contest. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Keeping things pan-Nordic, we had an article on our Denmark site this week about how comfortable Danes are with nudity. So we thought we'd investigate what it's like here in Sweden. Richard, you've had a look at this. What can you tell us? Are people comfortable about nudity in Sweden? Well... I thought so. <laughs> um, in my experience, they are. The first summer I was here, we were sailing around the archipelago and I was really surprised that, you know, my wife and her family, they sail out on the boats, this island just on Lake Mälar and not far from Uppsala. And, you know, the whole family goes into a sauna, everyone's completely naked, nobody mm. bats an eyelid, and then everyone jumps into the lake afterwards and goes for a swim naked. And that's how my wife's family works. And and down here in Skorna as well, my friends, where we have a summer house in Skorna, there's a lake and in the summer it's quite crowded and you wouldn't swim naked on the main beach in the middle of the day when there's people around. But all of the other pontoons, you know, around the back of the lake or mm. early in the morning or late in the evening, I don't, I think, I think it's totally normal to swim naked and we'll do. But having said that, I put an article up yesterday and I got, I got pushback 
pushback on Twitter from one okay, tweet. You should never over-exaggerate one, one piece of pushback. And she said, this is fake news. Swedes are very private and people even wear swimming costumes in their own private swimming spots by their summer houses. And I don't think that's true, but maybe it is increasing maybe it's becoming more common and you do see in the newspapers people complaining about this knock and scrack which is this fear of being naked which is invading sweden from from you know the prudish america so i, I don't know my experience is that swedes have a much more relaxed attitude to being naked around other people especially in the sauna but also when swimming than people in the uk do and in the uk it's always when you're drunk and it's a bit silly and everyone sort of giggles mm. whereas here it's just like not a big deal and it's just just because it's easy and comfortable and maybe that's because the people i know in sweden are the sort of the holdouts from this kind of 1970s social democrat utopian mm. idea where it was modern to be naked you know, it was a sign that you didn't have any kind of old-fashioned superstitions. You were liberated, and maybe that's only a part of Sweden, and that a lot of other Swedes don't feel like that at all, and they're more like people are in the UK or Ireland like, or US. I wonder if there's like increasing insecurity, like increasing bad body image. Like maybe if you're insecure about how you look, you don't want to get naked in front of other people. I don't know if it's necessarily prudish, but it could also just be like I don't want people to see me, kind of thing. Yeah, like no. with, you know, people saying that young people want to get naked less than older Swedes. I think this whole like everything you do is online. There's pictures of you online from when you were like ten or even younger, and maybe you don't want like you have such an image of your your body, and you don't want people to kind of judge you. Mm. Yeah, people... I th yeah, I think the the, the analyst we spoke to in the Denmark article said exactly that, uh, and I imagine that translates to Sweden as well. And there's also, you know, in a multicultural society, there are people coming in with a different approach. So, if, you know, people coming from the Middle East to Sweden, as, for example, feeling much less comfortable about, in many cases, being naked, even in single-sex environments. And, you know, perhaps even wearing shorts in the shower at the gym. Mm. And that also has an effect on, on, on society as a whole over, over time. It's inevitable. But I think even from the beginning, perhaps Sweden made less of a point of nudity than, say, countries like Germany, where, you know, there was a the Freikorpskultur, mm. where, where, you know, it was, it, was, it was actually a sort of a nudist movement. In Sweden, it was never really that deeply anchored in society in, in, in that way. It wasn't really a... People didn't make quite such a point of it. It was just something you did. And yeah, it feels like in Sweden it's just like, of course we're not going to swim in swimming costumes. He wants to carry around a wet swimming costume. It was just like, right, exactly. why would we wear clothes? Instead of it being like, we are liberated, we will be naked, everyone prance around, let it all out kind of thing. Yeah. Before I wrote the article, I rung up my, uh, my mother-in-law, who's my test of all these things. And she <laughs> said that when she was growing up in the 70s, when she was around in the 70s and the late 60s, it was perfectly normal for women to go topless on the beach. It was perfectly normal for when they went hiking, when they sort of sat down and brewed up some coffee, everyone would strip off. It really? was Yep, that's what she said. But she, she said that it changed in the end of the 80s. They went to work in Africa and when they came back, people were covering up a lot more and there wasn't so much open nakedness. In the 70s, 60s and 70s, people would, would sunbathe naked in public parks, apparently. Yeah. She was saying, you know, completely normal to go into Pildams Park and, in Malmo and find a bit away from everywhere and strip off and sunbathe. It also links to an extent to the sauna culture. You know, this, um, you know, a sauna should be enjoyed naked. In fact, you know, many people say that if you, you know, if you go from a swimming pool, for example, to a sauna with a swimming costume on, that it's actually dangerous because of all the chemicals from the, mm. from the swimming water. So the idea of going to a, into a sauna with a swimming costume on is 
frowned upon by many, many people with, you know, at least quasi-scientific explanations. I've no idea whether they're actually true. And that sort of, I think, extends to to some of this other context. I mean, often if you're if you're swimming in a lake in Sweden, for half the year at least, you've almost certainly been in a sauna first. And so so that, that links into the nakedness there. And did you experience any kind of culture shock around nakedness when you moved here? Yeah, I mean, I did. I've never been swim... I'd never been skinny dipping before I came to Sweden, if you wish to call it that. And in Sweden, I think they just call it swimming. Um, <laughs> and and, and you know the my, the first the first summer I came here to visit my now ex, we went out to someone's summer house and we all jumped in the water naked. And you know it was fine because it was with friends and I, I didn't I didn't feel uncomfortable with it. You know the idea of getting naked with your family though I. F- that the culture shock there is still total, and I well, I, I wouldn't. I mean, it just—it's not going to happen. It, but I, and I think a lot, I think I think for a lot of people, you know, it's, getting naked with friends is one thing. Getting naked with family is kind of another mm. level. How about you, Becky? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I've not really been. I don't think I've been naked swimming in Sweden. I mean, I've only been here for like three years and was pregnant for a lot of that, and then also had a small child to look after for a lot of that. So I was the one that would just like sit on the beach with with the child. But I think something that did make me laugh was we have we I live quite close to Kalis, Kalbadhuset in Malmö, where you can mm. go and swim naked in the sea. It's all like it's, it's like single sex or like it's split up into genders and you have like your own changing rooms. It's quite sheltered. But my, my dad loves running and they have this park run by the beach and then they go and have a fika at Kalis. And he was like, oh, I can't go for a swim. I forgot my swimming trunks like. No, no, Dad. It's naked. <laughs> he was like, "Oh, oh, okay, well, you're right." He just like absolutely didn't even consider the fact that people would go and swim naked in this. Like, it's just not something that you'd see in the UK. It would be like this strange kind of perverse thing that you'd have a, a special place where you could get naked and swim, and like, it's not even mentioned anywhere at Callis because it's so obvious that you wouldn't have a swimming costume there. I mean, me, I was I was kind of inoculated similarly to Becky I, I, because before I came to Sweden, I, I was in Finland. We, I lived with a bunch of Finns in London and they invited me back. And then these people who I'd known in London, you kind of get to their house and, and we passed this kind of swimming pool with a big hole in it. And I go, why, have you, why is there a hole in that swimming pool? And he goes, that is where we would jump. I can't do the Finnish accent. But he's like, that's where we're jumping <laughs> later. And I'm like, what? And then and then this person that you're used to knowing in London making you strip off. And then, as I said before, like beating, beating you black and blue with uh, birch twigs, which is supposed to bring the blood to the surface. That was definitely a culture shock. <laughs> that was definitely a culture shock. And, and, and as you say, the Finns are that much more hardcore than the Swedes. So the the Finns think that the Swedes have these kind of city saunas that are only like 70 degrees centigrade and they come in with like their (laughs) towels and sit down. And the Finns just, the Finns is just like drink like... Vodka. Drink like 10 10 beers over like 110 degrees centigrade. And, you know, it's quite macho sauna culture in Finland. After that, Sweden is relatively tame. So I was was ready. So Sweden's official climate policy watchdog strongly criticised the government's climate policy in a new report that was presented to the Climate and Environment Minister Romina Purmaktari on Wednesday morning. For the first time in two decades, Swedish government policy is likely to result in increased greenhouse gas emissions. 
the Swedish Climate Policy Council said in its report. And this is particularly as a result of plans to scale back on the so-called biofuels obligation, which requires an ever larger share of the petrol and diesel sold at Swedish petrol stations to be biofuel. The council, which was set up under the 2017 climate law, is tasked with producing a report every year which assesses whether the policies of the government then in power are enough to put the country on track to reach its overarching goal of net zero climate emissions by 2045. And it also assesses progress towards Sweden's goal of reducing emissions to 63% lower than 1990 levels by 2030. And I attended the release event on Wednesday and spoke to the council's vice chairman, Björn Sandén, about the report and how dramatic it is that Sweden is backsliding on its climate commitments. I think it's dramatic. Uh, and I think we over the last two decades we have decreased. But we, what we've said before in the, in the Climate Policy Council is that it needs to accelerate. We need to decrease faster. And now it seems like we will not decrease over the next year. And then the problem with that is that it's not only the kind of long-term target to be climate neutral in 2045 that counts. It's the total carbon budget that really matters for the climate. So if we increase now, those uh, emitted tons of CO2 will contribute to climate change over a long time. So the final recommendation in your report is for the government to present a clear narrative explaining why the climate transition is necessary as a means of getting all of society on board. What are the key elements a narrative like this should contain? I think the main key element is this, that it will be very difficult to reach any other societal goal, be it welfare, economy, security, anything will be very difficult in, in a world where we have dramatic climate changes. So therefore, there's this big synergy between managing the climate transition and with all other societal goals. I think that's, that's a key thing. And if you, if you can talk about that and communicate that, is, that is what you believe. Uh, I mean, as a, as a politician, you're also a leader, communicating the direction of where we are heading and making that meaningful and, and telling why that's important. Do you think the government will listen to your recommendations? I think they will listen to it. To what extent they will act, in what direction, uh, we'll see. That was Björn Sandén, the vice chairman of the Swedish Climate Policy Council. When presented with the report, the environment minister, Romina Pormaktari, said she welcomed its findings and assured all those in attendance that Sweden will get back on track in time to meet its climate targets for 2030. She didn't say how, however, but pointed to the fact that the government will release its climate action plan in the autumn. She was unfortunately whisked away to her nest appointment before I could speak to her, but I did did hear her express frustration about negotiations with the far-right Sweden Democrats over the biofuels obligation, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But first, one person I did manage to get hold of was the Green Party's co-leader, Merta Stenevi. And uh, she too brought up the Sweden Democrats after I asked her if she was surprised by the new government's direction on climate. Well, I haven't really been surprised because the the government was actually pointing this out to uh, themselves in their budget that they deliberately uh, went forward with policies that would increase emissions over the next few years. But I feel a little bit shocked having heard the the council now uh, presenting how the curves are going in the completely 
uh, wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Just a little more than a week after IPCC's last report that a lot of people has been calling the last call for action. Yeah. Uh, so it's really critical time and we need to, to lower emissions uh, to 2025. And at the same time, we have a government in Sweden that are now increasing uh, emissions, not because of, of the economy, not because of, of other circumstances, but deliberately by the policies that they are putting forward. The Environment Minister, Romina Pomaktari, um, says that the government can still reach Sweden's 2030 emissions targets. Do you think that's feasible? Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, possible for Sweden to reach the, the targets, but not with this government and not with the policies that they, that they are putting forward. Uh, she is uh, talking a lot about the, the action plan that they mm. need to put forward uh, this fall. But we have to remember that the, the parties in, in this coalition have less mandates in the Swedish parliament than one of the bigger opposition parties than combined. Mm. They need to negotiate this action plan with the extreme right. And they have been very clear in that they don't see any need for Sweden to reach those goals. So the possibility for that action plan to be tough enough is really, really slim. That was the Green Party's joint leader, Merta Stenevi. OK, on to the panel now. How much of a problem is it for the Environment Minister, Romina Pormaktari, that the government has to negotiate on climate policy with the Sweden Democrats? I and mean, we saw this week, for example, that the party is threatening a government crisis over the biofuels obligation. What can you tell us about that threat, James? Well, they've said that they will cause a government crisis, or cause a coalition crisis, if there isn't a compromise on that. So what the TIDA agreement between the government and the Sweden Democrats says is that we will reduce the biofuels requirement to the European minimum level. Now, what the Sweden Democrats are saying is, actually, do you know what? The minimum level in the EU is zero. And that is therefore what we want. So this has put them on a collision course with the rest of the government, and particularly the Liberals and uh, Romina Pumaktari. So for the Sweden Democrats, it's a really important promise to their voters because one of one of the things that their voters are cross about is the rising cost of petrol. Many of their voters live outside of the big cities, drive cars, drive petrol cars, and therefore the increase in the cost of petrol has been a big issue for them. But also the Sweden Democrats are sort of trying to profile themselves as kind of anti anti-climate effectively, basically saying that, you know, we, we, are, we, we don't want environmental measures to uh, negatively affect our voters. And um, if they can negatively, negatively affect our voters, we don't want to happen at all. So they become a bit more sort of climate sceptic. But the Liberals with Environment Minister Romina Pumaktori, um, I mean, they just say that zero is, is not an option. And so this, if, if they can't find um, common ground on this, then, you know, it could be a government crisis. You know, the, the Sweden Democrats say there will be trouble. They say they have said that a government crisis is something that they're willing to trigger over this. And we know that, you know, both the Liberals and the Sweden Democrats are needed for this government to survive. I expect that they will find some kind of um, agreement about it, but they are willing to take it down to the wire by the look of it right now. Mm. The Climate Policy Council's report warns that a significant reduction in the biofuels obligation coming in from the start of 2024 can be expected to increase annual emissions by several million tonnes. Richard, can you tell us more about this scheme, which is controversial in some ways, and why it's so central to Sweden's emissions reduction plan? If you just look at that seven several million tonnes, I mean, Sweden's 
total emissions are 30 something million tons a year. Mm. So if you have like, say, two, three million tons, it's a big chunk of the amount that, that is needed to be reduced to reach the 2030 target and the 2045 target, but also the special transport target by 2030, which is 70% reduction in emissions from transport. And um, yeah. it's controversial because when you burn biofuels, you do actually reduce release carbon into the atmosphere but that you say that it's carbon you calculate it as being carbon neutral because that carbon has been absorbed by trees or plants or whatever you've right. used to make the biofuel but critics say for example that if it's come from a tree that's been cut down in sweden that tree has grown over 60 years and we don't have 60 years to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere and there's also questions over where the biofuels come from is it coming from palm oil in malaysia where trees are being cut down right. is it coming from virgin forests in brazil or is it coming from, you know, Sweden's forests, I think, are quite well managed. And most of the stuff that's burnt or turned into biofuels comes from the branches, which would otherwise be left to rot. So they argue that that's a good standard. But the sheer amounts of biofuels that need to be used, there, there isn't enough production from Swedish forestry waste. So that's a part of the controversy. It's not as simple as just saying this is fossil free mm. or this is carbon neutral. The Climate Policy Council agrees that this is it's not ideal that the Swedish goals are so reliant on this metric but the fact is that it's going to leave an enormous gap that the government has not said how it's going to fill right I mean this is the thing is it is this kind of it's extremely complex and technocratic sort of how do you get down emissions it's 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 there's yeah. so much technology there's so much knowledge there's so much science involved and this government has come in without really a plan, knocked out, you know, half of the carbon that's, I don't know how much it is exactly, but a huge chunk of yeah. the carbon. You say, we'll find other ways of doing it. But it's not as if over the last 10 years with the Green Party in government, th they haven't looked at every possible way, every easy way, every low hanging fruit. There are no obvious ways of reducing emissions to net zero. And this is one of the easiest ways of doing it. I mean, you could, yeah. you could massively subsidise the replacement of electric cars. That would do it. But then how do you have the electricity? Do you have enough electricity to supply them? I don't know. And they, and they removed, the government removed the climate bonus for electric cars. They've removed the incentive to buy electric cars, exactly. So it's, they haven't come in with a kind of, with a thought out plan for emissions. And th that's something that this report has really shown clearly. They don't really have any ideas. I mean, people are saying, and it was amazing how Romina Pomictori came up and just sort of said, yes, yes, we, we're committed to this. And people said, well, how can you be committed to it when your government has just basically taken Sweden from being en route to meeting these goals to being yeah. way off. And, yeah. uh, and there, is no, there is no policy to fill in the gap. And I'm told that in the environment ministry that the new government, you know, has its hands over its ears and is going, la, 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 we, don't, we can't hear you. They're not talking to anyone. No, no experts are allowed to come in and br they're not uh, calling in the experts to brief them. That they're, they're not, it's hard to see where these new ideas are, are going to come from. I mean, I don't see why the, the biofuels obligation is so important to them. I don't think the Sweden Democrat voters care about where their petrol comes from. They, they just care about how much it costs. Yeah, well, they care about how much it costs and biofuels do make fuel somewhat more expensive. But yes, you can solve money problems you can solve with money. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not just the current government that comes in for criticism in the report. The Climate Policy Council also says that Sweden had already lost some 
momentum on climate action in the latter days of the Social Democrat-led government that was voted out in September. What do we know about that, Becky? So the council essentially said that the Social Democrats were quite good on climate issues while they were in government with the Greens, which is probably not really much of a surprise. But when the Greens dropped out of the coalition government, things got worse. So this was the end of 2021 when uh, Magdalene Anderson became the, the new prime minister. She took over after Stefan Levin and the, the Greens dropped out of the coalition. And essentially, before that, there was a ministerial climate working group, which was actually led by the prime minister, mm. uh, which then stopped, it ceased to exist or it ceased to be active after the Greens dropped out of the government. And then the Social Democrats started announcing policies after this, kind of running into 2022, which the council was critical of, like a pledge to pause this biofuels obligation that we were talking about in 2023. They brought in a a pledge to kind of cut taxes on petrol and diesel, extending a tax cut on diesel use in agriculture and forestry until until the first half of 2023. So this is absolutely by no means just a criticism of the current right-wing government. The Social Democrats also got a bit of a rap on the knuckles for deprioritising the climate once the Greens were no longer in the picture. This does reflect the the demographics of the Social Democrats voters compared to the Greens voters. The Social Democratic voters are much more spread around the country and they have quite strong, uh, they have quite a few strongholds in these sort of de-industrialised rural small towns. And, And, you know, for those voters the price of fuel is super important. For the Greens voters, um, not only are they most motivated by green issues, they are they're also far more urban than the Social Democratic voters. They have much better access to public transport and therefore the issue of the price of fuel is less of an issue for their voters than it is for Social Democrat voters. Yeah. It's very easy for those of us who live in large towns to say, well, everyone should pay more for petrol because it's because of the effect it has on climate. Well, if you're reliant on your car to get to work and you are working in a relatively low-paid job that's 20 kilometres away from, away from where you live, that is a big imposition on you. And it doesn't necessarily feel that great to have people in the city who can go around on buses or tube trains or just walk to work lecturing you on how you should mm. suck it up and pay more money for your petrol. I think they should bring in road pricing. It's super easy now. You can just stick a little thing in people's car and you can just charge you for charge people for driving in the roads, less for driving in the countryside than driving in the towns. You could have everyone charged just for how much they use their cars. They're talking about doing that in Denmark. And that's something the Climate Policy Council talked about as well, using targeted measures rather than these sort of general policies that give everybody uh, reduced prices. It makes complete sense and it is going to be important for the mainstream parties and for those who really want climate action to think about the differentiated impact on different kinds of people because you need to take you need to take people with you and people do care about the climate you can see in all the polls people do care about the climate but you know they also don't want it to be don't want the, the the price of climate action to be unfairly distributed and you know there is a reasonable argument to say that in some respects it is That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you're not already following Sweden in Focus, make sure to hit the follow button in your podcast app. Our panellists today were James Savage, Becky Waterton and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amani and we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage. <laughs>